This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, this is Greg Stanley, and I'm coming to you remote from Saratoga Springs, New York, uh, making a call for my day job, and I always love coming up to this neck of the woods. Beautiful part of New York. I'm happy to be here, but I am recording from a Marriott courtyard, hence the weird background behind me. No fish tank this week, no pretty lights, no Porsche posters in the background, so something a little bit different. Hopefully the sound turns out okay. I'll find out here shortly, but uh, glad to join you again. Uh, If you missed it, please go back to last week's episode, Montana Tags on Collector Cars, question mark. And that's where I dig deep with our friends at LLC TLC, where they can help you register your car in Montana and save you a boatload of cash. So they do everything from being a registered agent. They help you form your LLC. They'll help you with everything you need, annual reports, vehicle registration, renewal, mail forwarding. Whatever you need, they are there for you. So you can check them out at LLCTLC.com. Now, this was a really fun weekend. It was the Cincinnati Concord Elegance. I try to help out as much as I can. Uh, Very cool cars. One, uh, a Cunningham, and then an Auburn Boattail Speedster. Very cool cars, iconic cars. Uh, They had the hangar party Friday night. That's when I fell in love with the Cunningham C3. It was bought from by the owner from the broad arrow auction a couple months ago and it is actually being sold at rm sotheby's monterey auction coming up in august so it'll be interesting to see the the results difference between those two different auction houses obviously a lot of history between those two Uh, so it was a lot of fun the hangar party was great Uh, the countryside tour which i was the lead car and came up with the route apparently people really enjoyed it we ended at a private collection in milford ohio and then we had uh, the hangar party Friday or Saturday night. And then the big show on Sunday had a ton of rain, but everybody showed up. They had their cars covered up, but they still showed up, which was really awesome. And the rain stopped around 10.30 or so, and it was a great time had by all for the rest of the day. So really fun to see the, the uh, whole Concord team come together and pull it off despite the rain. Friday was gorgeous. Saturday was gorgeous. And of course, The rain had to come in Sunday morning just in time for the show. Well, I did want to give you a little call out. If you would, go to my YouTube page. Uh, I'm posting a few one-minute videos from Saratoga Auto Museum. Now, these might not post for a few days or even maybe a week or two, but it's such a great museum, and they have a great exhibit going on right now, Bond in Motion. So if you like James Bond, they have some of the real cars from the movies on display. So I will do a little short video of some of those and so you can experience them if you cannot make it up here to Saratoga Springs anytime soon. But when you do, be sure to check it out. Also, go to their website because they're giving away a Porsche GT4 RS. Incredible car. You can buy your tickets on their website. This is a an unpaid promotion. I just think they're great people. They do some great stuff and that's a great promotion. So this Bond uh, exhibit they have going on. It's through December 31st according to their website, but the curator said I think that's now January 31st because it is so popular. They have a 1964 Aston Martin DB5 used in GoldenEye. So this is one of the, okay, GoldenEye 1995, Tomorrow Never Dies 1997, Skyfall 2012, Spectre, and No Time to Die. They also have a Lotus uh, from the Wet Nelly used in The Spy Who Loved Me 1977. 
1999 BMW Z8 used in the world is not enough, which that was the big launch of the Z8, getting that in that movie prior to it actually being available uh, for the market. 2002 Matt Aston Martin V12 Vanquish used in Die Another Day 2002. 2006 Aston Martin DBS from uh, Casino Royale. And then the last one, they, they do have a couple extras beyond this list. 2015 Aston Martin DB10 used in Spectre in 2015. So they do a really, really nice job uh, putting on this show so or putting on these different exhibits. All right, so I want to move on and talk about the ultimate automotive trifecta. Now, this is my own opinion. <laughs> I'm not, I have not heard this listed anywhere else or I've seen it anywhere else. But as I've dealt with collectors and clients and auto enthusiasts, you, you kind of hear about these are the best of the best cars. And it always comes down to three. Now, you can make arguments for, you know, one of the rare Bugattis, Duesenberg. You can make many arguments for a couple different cars. But uh, I don't know if, if there's a collection in the world. I'm going to assume there is one in the world that has all three of these. I don't know of one off the top of my head. But the three cars that I want to review today would be the Alfa Romeo 8C, the Ferrari uh, GTO, and the McLaren F1. Those three cars are iconic for so many different reasons, each from their different era, and they have withstood the test of time to be some of the most legendary cars ever made. So I want to review those. Those are my automotive trifecta. The If you only had three cars, those are the three cars I would have, and I think they're considered three of the most iconic collectible cars uh, out there. And so let's dig in. Now to do this, we need to kind of go back in time a little bit. So we're going to go back first to the Alfa Romeo 8C. Now I have, if you're joining me on YouTube, I do have a picture up from RM Sotheby's when they had a uh, sale a number of years ago, uh, 2018, I believe, from the Sam and Emily Mann collection. Just a stunning car. So I'm going to read this article. Now this article is from RM Sotheby's uh, from when they sold this car a few years ago. I just thought it was so good. I thought, why don't I share it now? And I will flip through the pictures of this incredible car uh, on YouTube. <clears throat> what in the mid-1930s passed for a sports car? The wealthy buyer's options were few and far between. MGs were exciting, true, but small, inexpensive, and rough around the edges. Mercedes-Benz 540Ks and Duesenberg were fast, but massive, and not particularly storehouses of new technology. Bugatti certainly qualified with its nimble, if unorthodox, chassis engineering and potent when supercharged overhead cam engines. Above all of these was the Alfa Romeo 8C2900, whose lineage is part of a consistent and logical evolution stretching back to the 1920s, to the competition-oriented P3s and the overwhelming race victories achieved in the early to mid-1900s by the 8C2300s. The 8C2900 was not a mere sports car, but the most advanced, modern, and compelling sports car that money could buy. To the gentleman who was accustomed to watching the workings of his Swiss watch or mastering the intricacies of his yacht's sails, it was a symphony. Each wheel carried independent suspension. Its Jano-designed straight-eight engine was two alloy banks of four cylinders with not only dual overhead camshafts, but two roots-type superchargers as well. As exciting and dramatic as the 2.9 chassis itself was, they benefited from the addition of some of the most sensuous and well-balanced coachwork of the pre-war era. 
And if you're watching on YouTube, you can definitely see how beautiful these cars were. There was also, I think there's one down at the Brumos Museum in Jacksonville that I could not stop looking at the last time I was down there. Foremost among the handful of mostly Italian coach builders who works graced a 2.9 chassis was Milan's own Carazzeria Touring, whose patent for the Superleggera construction happily coincided with the birth of Alfa Romeo's masterpiece. The Superleggera method, based on lessons learned from Frenchman Charles Wayman's fabric-paneled coachwork, utilized an inner framework of pencil-thin hollow steel tubes wrapped in outer panels of aluminum with fabric used in between as a buffer against electrolysis. Very interesting. Unlike previous lightweight construction methods, Turing's new idea allowed for a virtually featherweight structure that could be curved to suit the wind. Tales are rife of Turing engineers running prototype bodies on the road with stripes of felt, strips of felt attached. Photographers would capture images of the cars at speed and the body lines would be adjusted to suit the curves of the streamlines. Some of the Turing's best early Superleggera bodies were built on the 2.9 chassis, both the long wheelbase Lungo and the short wheelbase Corto variants. Regardless of the length, the bodies were nearly perfect in their curvaceous proportions and most notably, their steeply raked windshield and grille with rear wheels often shaded by fitted spats, long flowing pontoon fenders, and a rear end that appeared tucked between the fenders, visually exaggerating the great powerful length of the nose. Turing's usual attention to detail resulted in small sparks of polished chrome here and there, like sterling displayed on black velvet. Now, this is a great article, I have to say. One of the fortunate, cir one of the fortunate circumstances of the 8C2900 is that every known chassis has been scrupulously studied and researched by knowledgeable historian Simon Moore. Only approximately 32.2.9 chassis were made. The survivors are the most sought after European sports cars of their generation, none more so than those bodied by Turing. Of the examples of the 8C2900, it is to believe that only 12 are Turing spiders, seven of which are on the long chassis. That's incredible. Let's see here. They combine the best engineering and styling of their generation in one advanced, sensuous, undeniable, thrilling package. The 2.9 is yes, immortal, as it was described by Automobile Quarterly. It remains simply extraordinary in every sense of the word. Now, what is one of these worth? Now, if you're looking online with me right now, at the time that this last one was sold, uh, the estimate was 20 to $25 million. This was 2018. I have to believe that has gone nowhere but up since then. So I would say 25 to $30 million is probably where these would be placed at this time. They're so rare, they're so beautiful. Such an iconic car, hence why it is one of the three that make up at least my automotive trifecta. All right, the next one is the iconic Ferrari GTO. Now the example I'm pulling here is a 1962 Ferrari 250 GTO that was sold in 2018 by RM Sotheby's. Now this article is from supercars.net. Uh, they did a nice job recapping some of this. Now I think some of this is not 100% correct, but I will call that out uh, when I see it here. All right, so I'm gonna flip through the pictures as well. Aerodynamics are for people who can't build engines is an oft-repeated quote from Enzo Ferrari and one which he probably regretted when considering cars like the 250 GTO. 
During its heyday, this Gran Turismo GT dominated World Manufacturers Championship and events like the 24 Hours of Le Mans with its newly designed body that could go 180 miles per hour. With form following function, this efficient shape was inadvertently one of the most voluptuous to grace a Ferrari chassis. These are stunning, gorgeous cars, especially the Series 1 example with the original GTO body. At this level of performance style and pedigree, it shouldn't be surprising that the 250 GTO is currently one of the most expensive cars in the world. Since the GTO is the Ferrari which is, has achieved the most acclaim, its history and details are worth investigating. Now, most people believe only 36 were built, but that's actually more like 39 because you had a handful of 4-liter engines, uh, engine cars as well. Let's see, 1960 racing was not about preservation. Some cars lost their original engines and aluminum bodies long ago, which makes the few correct cars even more valuable. Despite many fakes, all examples of the genuine article are accounted for, none ever, having ever been lost, and all have documented lineage, which also adds to their value. At the time of development, general manager Gardini was worried about the E-Type launch, the Jaguar E-Type, in 1961 and the lineage of successful Jaguar prototypes that came before it. For the 1962 Manufacturers Championship, focus was switched from sports prototypes to GT cars, and Ferrari was motivated to further develop their 250 GT as much as the rules would allow. They built the 250 Gran Turismo Omogato, let me get that right, which is where GTO comes from, and named it after the, the homologation process in which it was conceived. Providing a basis for the GTO was a 250 GT racing chassis. Before the 1962 season, Ferrari had already built nearly 200 competition cars based on the 250 GT. Starting in 1954 with the 250 Euro, Europa GT, the engine chassis and body of the 250 series evolved to a greater product each year, and it was the production car that universally spread the Ferrari name the world over. The 250 GT's ultimate development was the GTO, and it was bulletproof from the start. All right, let's see. A small team led by Bizzarini was given the green light as early as 1960 to develop the 250 GT and extend its winning record before the rear engine cars such as the 250 LM were released. Bizzarini created a crude prototype called Papera from his own 250 GT Buono chassis and a dry sump version of the V12 engine. The chassis and body for, were modified in secret to keep the whole car as low and as aerodynamically efficient as possible. This meant moving the engine lower and further back in the chassis that allowed for a sleek new fastback body. Made at Bizzarini's racing department, the Papera's body was crude but functional and shaped the final production version. The rear end was designed using the COM cam principle that cut off the rear bodywork while the front had a small front area that made the GTO predecessors look like a brick. <laughs> Early tests by Sterling Moss at Monza show significant improvements in every area over the short wheelbase Ber Berlinetta, sometimes called the GTO prototype that raced at Le Mans in 1961. At their yearly press conference held February 24, 1962, Ferrari released no fewer than six different racing models and among these versatile race cars was chassis 3223 GT, the first production version of the 250 GTO. 
a series of GTOs that followed would eventually become the most important Ferraris, demanding money, attention, and acclaim. After the 1962 press conference, a car like the GTO was in high demand, but Ferrari reserved them only for the top drivers. In many regards, the 250 GTO was deemed too dangerous for most drivers by Ferrari and his team. After testing, the GTO was ready for the 1962 season. Sadly, there was no serious challenge to the supremacy of the GTO from any other maker, as neither the lightweight Jaguar E-Type nor the DP214 Aston Martins were fully developed. Sounds like a cakewalk. I can't believe that. With the GTO, Ferrari completely decimated the opposition in the first year of competition and scored maximum points in 1962 Division III championship for sports cars over two liters. During the fifth hour of the 24 Hours of Le Mans, GTOs placed second and third overall behind the winning Ferrari 330 TRI slash LM. This was a remarkable result and proved that the GTO could beat many cars in the prototype category. By the end of the first season, Jaguar, Aston Martin, and Chevrolet tried to convince the governing body that the GTO was not a GT car. However, Appendix J, Section 254, stated that any modifications introduced after homologation did not disqualify the car if they were a normal evolution of the type. Since the GTO was an evolution of the largely produced 250 GT road car, it was declared legal. Although the five-speed gearbox and dry sump lubrication were never factory road car options. Interesting. So they probably should have been allowed. The remaining two seasons would prove very successful for the GTO. Ferrari again took the Division Three championship in both 1963 and 1964. By the end of the 1964 season, Shelby-led Daytona Cobras were proving their worth. And the first time, for the first time, GTOs were beating around Le Mans and Sebring. Beyond 1964, the GTO was stretching its potential. Ferrari was unable to homologate their rear-engine 250LM and instead developed a competition version of the 275 GTB, which was really a 65 GTO. Those are incredibly expensive. Uh, they only made, I think, three of those. These developments left the hack trick of the Division Three championships to forever highlight the end of Ferrari's 250 GT series. So very successful, won three consecutive years, so what is it worth today? Now the one that was sold in 2018, the estimate was 60, I'm sorry, 45 to 60 million dollars. It sold for 48 million dollars. Now famously, one uh, the WeatherTech owner McNeil supposedly bought one privately for 70 million dollars. That was a Series One, I believe. I heard it was really 67 million dollars, but that's still the high water mark. I believe the right car with the right provenance should bring 70 to 75 million dollars right now which is one of the most expensive cars, obviously, in the world. All right, let's get a little bit newer here with our third car for the trifecta. Oh, I also wanted to mention the GTO name was brought back for the 288 GTO. Uh, we sold one of these in the past. Estimates right now around four to five million dollars for a really good 288 GTO. And then again, it was brought back for the 599 GTO, and those are typically uh, 700, 800, maybe a million dollars, depending on mileage and options. So the GTO name has lived on beyond uh, the initial one. All right, so the last car we're going to put in our trifecta here is the McLaren F1. Iconic, incredible car. Uh, you know what? Visually, you know, I think, you know, I like it more now than I did when it initially came out. Obviously, it's iconic. Um, the pictures I'm showing online are from last year in Monterey when we had an F1 private sale. I do not want it. I do not know what it sold for. I would 
guess it sold for somewhere around 20 to 22 million dollars. Uh, all right, so this is from the August 1964 issue of Car and Driver from uh, Peter Robinson. Now this is when the car first came out and I just thought this article was so good. I thought, you know what, I need to read it for the trifecta edition. All right, so here we go. It's flying. An instant after being launched by a hump in the road at over 100 miles an hour, my view of the sky from the central driving position of the McLaren F1 supercar is pure cinescope. The moon could be our destination. In that airborne instant, I believe anything is possible. Forget the moon. With an engine this potent, let's aim for Marge. Well, what a great opening paragraph. When the four-point touchdown comes, it is so velvety that the suspension feels as though it might have been designed for landings. Instantly, the sound of rushing air is shattered by a sharp bark from the engine as the $815,000 McLaren is propelled down the back top, blacktop, accelerating at a rate I've never before experienced. Foot down hard, the straight vanishes as the speedo needle hits 125 miles per hour, an instant shift. So precise and mechanical, it's like putting back a well-oiled bolt on a rifle. Bring, brings fourth gear and another disorienting burst of power that thrusts me forcefully back into the tight-fitting bucket seat. Still we accelerate. Just 5.4 seconds later, a green upshift light flashes, appropriately positioned at the 7500 RPM redline on the tack in the center of the instruments, into fifth gear at 150 miles an hour, still no lessening of acceleration thrust. The car, squat stable, a green limpet on the road, shoots forward. Maybe there's space before the corner to grab six at 180 miles an hour, maybe. No, my courage runs out. The survival instinct takes over. Onto the brakes, I press hard. Through the pedals, inert feel before they bite to blunt forward movement. <laughs> Less than 30 seconds earlier, I'd waited back up the road for, all, for an all clear signal. Even as the BMW's V12 idled evenly at 900 RPMs, I could sense its invincibility. The exhaust note might be subdued, but caress the throttle and the revs soar. I can't resist, nobody could. The engine responds so instantly it feels as if it doesn't have a flywheel like a racing engine. The induction bellow is almost ephemeral. It can be timed so accurately. The tack needle jerks savagely around the gauge as if directly connected to the crankshaft. I'm alone at last, able to contemplate the enormity of the car so swift that it demands an utterly different mental approach. The McLaren forces restraint because there's no way, to, no way to drive it legally except on an Autobahn or a racetrack, and even begin to probe to the full extent of its power and speed. It's an event every time you floor the throttle, producing an irresistible desire to remain behind the wheel to learn as much as possible about a car so intense in its focus, so single-minded in its approach, that I conceived even a top-ranked driver could own it for years and still not explore the outer limits of its staggering performance envelope. Forget the Jaguar XK, XJ220, Bugatti EB110, Ferrari F40, until now cars deserving to be called rapid. The McLaren blitzes them all, and we have proof. Concern, confirmed by Daltron Optic Test Gear, the numbers do the talking. The F1 blasts to 60 miles per hour in 6.2 seconds. The Porsche 959, the previous production car record holder, needed 3.6 seconds to the watch. We saw 100 miles an hour in 6.3 seconds. The Ferrari F40 took two seconds longer. McLaren hits 150 miles an hour in 12.8 seconds, a smidgen longer than it takes Porsche's latest greatest 911 to meet to reach 100 miles an hour. 
Zero to 200 miles an hour takes 28 seconds. The standing quarter mile uh, is mildly laughable. <laughs> Top speed, the F1 runs into the 7,500 RPM red line and six at 221 miles an hour, but it's still acceler accelerating. Very incredible. Best of all, whatever the right foot does instantly translates to the rear wheels in a way no turbo engine can emulate. The com this combination of flexibility and sheer muscle, the perception that the engine is never stressed, together with the howl of a big capacity V12 and accelerating, and its relative hush at constant throttle ensures that this is undoubtedly the finest high-performance production engine in the world. Wow, really great. Mc McLaren's obsession with weight has obviously paid off. The company has produced the fastest, most accelerated production car the world has ever seen. That it is also a marvelous driver's car is beyond dispute. However, in building a car capable of charting territory no road machine has ever broached before, McLaren is also asking the driver to stifle the car's performance, at least on the road. That the McLaren is capable of delivering pleasure even when the driver is skimming its potential is a real measure of its achievement. So like I said before, what's it worth? Well, somewhere around $20 million, 2025, depending on condition. They only made, I think, 106 of them, maybe. Anyways, great article. I did abbreviate it somewhat. So if you want to check it out, uh, read the whole article, just Google it. You'll find it online. Very, very cool. So as always, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Collector Card Podcast. That's my trifecta, my automotive trifecta. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Thanks for sharing. And I will talk to all of you next week. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.